0: Hi friends, my name is Kevin and this is the VIA Media podcast. The discovery and study of genetics began in 1896 when a Swiss chemist Johann Friedrich Meischer identified a protein that he called nuclein, which later became known as deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. Then in 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick identified the now famous double helix structure of DNA, giving us further insight into the structural foundation of our biology. But what this molecule actually means has been complicated by eugenic philosophies, racism, and scientific misunderstandings of causal relationships, all used as a biological justification for our social stratifications. In response, those who care deeply about equality and social justice have derided genetic studies as either irrelevant or invalid. And all this makes it difficult to ascertain the truth of the matter. Katherine Page Hardin is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, where she directs the Developmental Behavior Genetics Lab and co-directs the Texas Twin Project. Her work is focused on behavioral genetics, the study of how our genes influence our behavior. Her book, The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, proposes that DNA really does influence, guide, and direct the kind of person we become, which includes aspects like temperament, intelligence, and physical characteristics. But this fact is not the whole truth, and suggesting that this information determines our social structures is wrong. Rather, genetic expression should come together in a synthesis of both our biology and our environment, and we get to choose how we engage with the science of genetics with our core values of justice and equality. Here is my conversation with Catherine Page Hardin. We are an organization that's inspiring a curious and hopeful humanity as the way forward. And tonight, my guest, oh my goodness, so thankful, Catherine Page Hardin, The Genetic Lottery. Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. Paige, thank you so much. Can I call you Paige? Is that okay?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. And thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure.
0: Oh, and thank you for saying yes to us. We recognize you just had a child. You've been on maternity leave. And so we're very honored to be the very first um, for, first organization to have you um, come on out and share. So it's... Yeah,
1: thanks for letting me uh, you know, get back on the horse <laughs> with you.
0: Yeah, it's very awesome. All right. So um, this is a a phenomenal read and a phenomenal um, survey and analysis of our genetic history. Um, There's also genealogy in here. There's moral philosophy in here. And so what I thought we could do is just understand what is the basic thesis and the basic understanding of the science of genetics You also dive into the cultural history of genetics, which talks uh, a lot about racism, eugenics, um, also this incredibly influential book, The Bell (laughs) Curve, and its history and its influence on culture. And so I'd like to unpack a little bit of that, but then you're also proposing a philosophy for where we go from here. What do we do with this information? So that's a little bit of where I'd like to go and then a lot of tangents along the way. So the first question is, what is the genetic
1: lottery (laughs) yeah so the genetic lottery is a it's a metaphor that works on two levels so the first is the lottery of genetic inheritance Um, every parent every human has two copies of all their genes and every time a child is conceived um, they get one copy of each of their parents genes and which which copy they get is random. So this was one of Mendel's laws of inheritance um, that he discovered with his work with pea plants, but it works with humans too. So if we're thinking about any pair of parents um, and all the different possible combinations of genes that they could give to a child, there are 70 trillion possible combinations, right? So one way to think about that is if you could have trillions of children and they would still all be genetically different from one another. Um, So the genetic lottery is what effect does that have on our lives? That I got the genes that I got as one random draw from my parents genome and my brother got a different one. Um, My three children are three random draws from my genome. Um, So that's the first uh, use of the word or the phrase, the genetic lottery. It's also a play on words because, um, as you've already mentioned, I was very influenced by the political philosopher John Rawls. And he never talked about the genetic lottery, but he talked about the natural lottery, which was, um, you know, all the things that we think of as, as influenced by our biology, our quote unquote natural talents, you know, they, by the time we get to our adult lives, you know, we are good at bad, some things and bad at other things. And he really encouraged us to think us about what is fairness in a world in which there is this natural lottery. So that the goal of the book is to talk about both of those things, both, what do we know scientifically about the effects of the genetic lottery on our lives? And then how do we make sense of thinking about equality and fairness if there are these effects of the genetic lottery if the natural lottery is at play in our society
0: yeah okay so let's tease some of this out Um, genetics is something it's actually a fairly newly understood area of study I mean you know when Darwin was writing his particular works he had no clue about genetics and so and DNA and all this kind of stuff so this is a fairly new at least within the course of of human study and understanding um, what Is this actually telling us about determinants oh i'm jumping ahead with all these (laughs) ideas but yeah we hear these phrases um it's in your genes and it's become so much a part of our popular understanding i feel like there's a fair amount of misunderstanding as well because it's a fairly fresh area and then given Mm -hmm. some of its history so let's start with the question of what actually our most current understanding of what our genetic Uh, analysis can actually tell us about material outcomes and then maybe let's uh, let me start with that general question and then maybe we can get to the more specific questions because whenever I talk about this subject with friends it's race, intelligence, eugenics. So let's start with the general. What do our genes and what does our genetic understanding actually say about our humanity and the outcomes?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're totally right that it's so new. My students are always surprised to learn that we didn't even have the word gene or genetics until the early 1900s, that Mendel was doing his early work on heredity without any knowledge of what the the physical substrate of inheritance was. And that work was separate from the work of Darwin, who also didn't know it. And we didn't discover the structure of DNA until the early 1950s, right? So this is a very new area of science. And when people learn about genetics in high school, they often start with and and, and too often end with um, the very early studies of Mendel. Right. So Mendel worked with pea plants. And the way you learn it in high school is, well, there's a gene for being a wrinkly pea plant and a gene for being a smooth pea plant. And what gene you get determines your phenotype. And there's one gene. Right. And then I think often we kind of port that knowledge Um, into a very bad understanding of human genetics, where people talk about the depression gene or the gay gene or the, um, I have the addictive personality gene. And that's not how genes work for almost any of the differences that we study as psychologists. So when we're talking about mental health, when we're talking about propensity for addiction, when we're talking about intelligence test scores, or likelihood to go far in school, or personality. All of these are traits that are influenced by thousands upon thousands of genetic differences between us that add up to an effect that is probabilistic rather than deterministic. And what I mean by that is that it changes your likelihood of of displaying a certain outcome but the environment still matters that environment can still switch genes on and off and so there isn't this kind of one-to-one you know you have this gene and it codes for you being smart or you being outgoing that is not how genetics works instead we have many tiny factors that add up to slight differences in, in the probability of you being a little bit taller a little bit higher scoring on an IQ test, a little bit more extroverted, but the environment always matters in those relationships.
0: Well, not just the environment you're talking I mean, when you talk about thousands of genes, there's also the various um, expressions of each of those particular genes in that cascade. I think you used the the phrase, well, the polygenic um, index is uh, one way Mm -hmm. of measuring that, but then there's also cascading effects as well. As somebody who's not a geneticist, am I on the right track of understanding
1: that? 100%. So your DNA is, you know, it's a large molecule that sits inside your cells. And in order for it to do anything, it has to be expressed. It has to be read into proteins. There are some parts of our genome that code for proteins and some parts of our genome that give instructions for other parts of it to be read. And so we're really doing a very audacious thing when we're trying to link genes to behavior or genes to psychology, because we are trying to put together these very long cascades. So the These genes in these environmental conditions are expressed in these proteins. Maybe that protein is a receptor in your brain that affects how much you like nicotine, you know. And then when you're exposed to cigarettes, and you like it more, and you live in a state that doesn't tax them very heavily, then you're more likely to become addicted to them. And then if you lack medical care, then you're more likely to get lung cancer, right? So we're looking at every level of analysis from um, disease, health policy, taxation policy, the availability of a substance, what that substance does in your brain. You know, nicotine makes your dopamine light up down to the gene that codes for that receptor. So that's what we're trying to do is put together all those different levels of analysis.
0: You're mentioning the taxation of tobacco, which is later on in your book, which I found tremendously fascinating. Um, Let's just restate it, I suppose, just since you already went there, the policies that we create, the social structures that we create are part of how our genes are essentially expressed, which is why this is so critically important. And and two things that one of the things that I want to make sure that we kind of articulate, we should dismiss with the language. I have the gene for X is 100
1: percent. Yes. If you get nothing out of this talk other than there is no gene for any human behavioral or psychological characteristic. Right, yes, we right. should break up with that phrase.
0: Right. Um, And then later, let's pause on the tobacco thing, because that's later in how we take our understanding of our genetic makeup and how we create policies around it and what kind of influences that has. So let me ask the question then, if there is no gene for uh, intelligence, if there is no gene for height, if there is no gene for race, why in the world did we get ourselves in such a mess when we talk about genetics and intelligence and race and the bell curve and all of this kind of stuff give us a little bit of a history of how we got to this particular point that has made its way into our our cultural milieu (laughs)
1: yeah so i think one important point to remember is that racism preceded genetics and it doesn't need genetics right it is not as if we were living in A radically unclassist, unracist, egalitarian society and then we discovered something from genetics and then that caused us to reconsider. Instead all of this was happening with Darwin, with Mendel, with Galton, who's another British um, scientist that I talk about a lot in the first part of my book, was happening in a society that was also a very racist classist place. So Galton, who was you know, the father of eugenics, he's the one who coined that term, his kind of intellectual preoccupation was, well, how do we justify colonialism, the slave trade? How do we justify this class structure in the UK? And it used to be that people referred to people's you know skulls or body types to justify this hierarchy of inferior and superior people. And then as scientists began learning more about heredity, patterns of heredity, the physical structure of DNA, they co-opted that to justify an ideology. So, you know, really from the very beginning, scientific knowledge about genetics and the nascent field of statistics was almost immediately appropriated to justify, you know, racist and classist ideologies. And that has made the topic really, really difficult to think about and unpack. Um, You know, the challenge of this book is really a challenge I think that we all have um, in the field right now, which is how uh, how do we take the science and ideas of terrible men and um, extract what's true out of them and leave the garbage behind? How can we reimagine this relationship between difference and equality, recognizing that there's a long intellectual history where difference was considered a justification for inequality?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is that is the question. And I think um, in the last couple years, you've been on some podcasts and had some those conversations recently because one of the things that the facts and the truth of dna does is that it rubs up against both the conservative and the liberal like wherever you happen to be on this particular spectrum you may not like some of what the data actually says um so what does the data say um regarding let's say intelligence which is one of those areas that's incredibly sensitive um, and has been used and appropriated by uh, various folks who want to instill particular social structures and systems that continue the oppression. I mean, you, you talk about um, redheads and reading ability in your book, which I thought was really wonderful. Could you maybe start with that example? Like, what what is that, and then how does that um, cause us to kind of utilize the outcomes of that social structure to then backtrack, conclude, oh, that must be genetics. That must be yeah. redheads. Redheads clearly can't read, or something along yeah, those lines. And yeah. so how does that influence? So,
1: so the redhead example was proposed by a sociologist named Christopher Jinks in the seventies, actually. So it's it's an old thought experiment, and he said. Well, if we lived in a society that discriminated against redheaded children, such that they weren't allowed to go to school, then the genes that code for red hair, um, if you have certain genes, you have red hair versus blonde hair versus black hair, would come to be correlated with literacy, but not because there's some inherent uneducability involved in redheaded children, but because the gene Produced a phenotype that was then the the object of social derision and discrimination, and it was that social process that led to the outcome.
0: Can, can I? And interrupt- I think that
1: was a really trenchant point. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Sorry, uh, just for the audience, uh, what is a phenotype? Just to make sure that we're all on the same uh, page. Here.
1: Yeah. So the phenotype is everything that that's the the outcome that you're interested in, right? So if you were saying in this thought experiment red-headed genes are correlated with literacy, then literacy is your phenotype of interest. It's your outcome, it's your trait of interest. Um, so that's a, I, that, that thought experiment, I think, is really valuable. And the reason why we're talking about it still 50 years later is that in, empirically, when we look at the data, we do see correlations between the genes you happen to inherit and how far you go in school what do you get on intelligence tests? I really like using the phrase intelligence test scores instead of intelligence. I think of intelligence as a much broader, richer concept than what the the sorts of skills we measure on the things we call intelligence tests. Um, But if we look at the data, we see correlations between which genes you inherited and your scores on those tests, on your personality, on your risk for mental illness. Where we are just beginning to scrape the surface of understanding is why. And is it because your gene changes your brain, your genes, plural, changes your brain, and that affects your ability to learn the way that we set up certain classrooms? Um, but would that be different if classrooms were different? Would that be different if, you know, is it something about the child's physical appearance that's, that's eliciting certain treatment from, from their teachers. So it's that question of, of mechanism that's, that's so interesting scientifically, but also so important to keep in mind when we're trying to counteract this narrative that your genes determine your, you know, your intelligence or determine your success in school. So a, a real life example I can think of um, that we see in our own research is that some of the genes that are correlated with going further in school are genes that are related to being a morning person versus an evening person right? And all you evening people are thinking about all the times that you had to drag yourself out of bed to get to high school at seven o'clock in the morning. My high school started at 7.15. My kid's school starts at 7.30, right? That is an entire educational system built for morning people, right? And it's not about the uneducability of evening people. It's about a match between someone's biologically influence proclivities. You tend to work better in the morning versus the evening and the way that we've set up a social structure. And so those are the sorts of um, gene environment transactions that I, that I want us to be thinking about when we're thinking about genetic influences on phenotypes like education.
0: Okay, so the conservative side is going to say that environment has nothing to do with it. The liberal side <laughs> is going to say that it's all a social construct. So let's yeah. talk about the other side then, because there, parsing out what is causal and what is determined is very tricky business, it feels like. Yeah. Um, so yeah. because you're going to make, uh, you, you have made the case that there is, causality when it comes to these things. For example, uh, morning person versus evening. There is something about our genes that does this. So can we, can you help us understand what then actually is causal about our genetic makeup?
1: Yeah, so cause is a really tricky word. Uh, If you wanna get 10 scientists to fight about something, put them in a room, especially if they come from different disciplines and say, what makes some? What is a cause, and how do you know you found one? Um, but in the social sciences, so in psychology or in um, economics or in sociology, a really common definition of cause is as a difference maker. So, um, if I um, uh, changed this, if I changed X. Would it change the probability of? Would it make a difference in the probability of some outcome? Right. So if I gave you lithium, would you be less likely to be manic? If you know, if you had bipolar disorder, that's an example we use. Um, that doesn't mean determine. Right. Some people don't respond to lithium. Right. If I, um, you know, could delete Instagram from existing, would teenagers be less depressed? right? That's a causal hypothesis. There are some teenagers that aren't depressed even if they use Instagram. There are some teenagers that would be depressed regardless of what we did with social media. But I have a hypothesis that it's a difference maker. So when I say that genes are causal, I'm not saying that they're the, the cause, the only cause. I'm saying that they're difference makers. And human lives are causally complex, which means that they have Many causes operating on us all the time and genes are part of that mix is, is how I'm using the, the word cause here.
0: This is why I love your work because um, I don't think we are, we have a propensity or we have a cap- uh, an easy capability of thinking through the vast number of influences that bear upon ourselves. And so when we read about genetic studies, it's easy to simply defer to the gene that causes. Mm-hmm. Or if we don't like that particular explanation, it's easy to defer to, well, I was raised this way or, or my environment made me this way. And what you're proposing is that there, in order to truly understand outcomes, you have to take into consideration both. And what's difficult is that the genetic journey that we've been on is incredibly complicated and variegated with multiple factors, and our environmental journey is incredibly variegated with multiple factors. Um, so, you've just given us a lot of work to try to figure <laughs> out what to do. Yes. Here. And, I,
1: you know, I think that this is a, in, it's so interesting to me because I think some people respond to complexity with helplessness or despair, right? How could we possibly begin to figure this out? Whereas I think, isn't this so exciting? We're never gonna run out of things to study. We're never gonna run out of questions that can be answered. You know, one thing that I tell my undergraduates is that psychology is about people and people will never bore you. If you're really interested in people, you know there's always something to be discovered there. And you know people are social animals. So we are we are animals in that we have a biology. we have an inherited biology that has power in our lives. We are social creatures that create culture. We're acculturating each other. Um, and then we also are creatures that take moral responsibility and try to create the self in a really active way, and and it's very easy. I think, I think you're exactly right. I think it's very easy for people to to have diff to to focus on just one of those dimensions, right? Because to but I think really being a psychological way of thinking about things is to try to hold all three of those in our mind at the same time. You know, how can it be our biology and our culture and our family and our self-directed self-creation all happening in real time (laughs) over the lifespan? And what an audacious thing to try to study, but also what an incredible privilege to be able to think about how those things intersect.
0: Oh man, I love everything that you just said and in full concurrence. I think part of the problem that I've mused about, I don't know if you've done any studies on this, is that the ambiguity and complexity is actually calorically heavy. It takes a lot of energy to do this. (laughs) And so uh, in some of my circles, some of my friends who like to think deep thoughts and engage with all this stuff, I say, well, this is almost as good as working out. So it's it's actually pretty decent. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Can you uh, touch a little bit on a, a specific example which which takes everything that you just mentioned but puts it into like a very practical area which is ADHD and genetics. Um, yeah because you mentioned page 134 uh, uh, you mentioned that this is neither biological nor pure uh, sorry, n- neither purely biological nor purely social. It is rather a pattern of experience, which I thought was a fantastic phrase a pattern of experience and behavior that arises at the intersection of someone's particular neurobiology with the expectations of a particular social context. And I have friends, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in Silicon Valley here, so this is one of the things people wonder about Silicon Valley's influence, specifically with all the digital media and stuff like that. Um, so can you explain your perspective on that specific uh, you, you know, human psychology and outcome and with all of your work?
1: Yeah, I think ADHD is a perfect example. Um, I don't know if I could describe it better than I than I thought to describe it you know, the way that I phrase it in the book, but, it, but if you think about what do we see in ADHD, right? We see um, difficulty sitting still or difficulty focusing on activities that are not intrinsically interesting. Um, we see that ADHD children look different when we put them in a scanner right like if we if we are looking at the way their brain is responding to stimuli um, we see genes that are correlated with adhd but we also see that you know children who are the youngest in their classroom are more likely to be diagnosed with adhd the thing we call adhd than children who are the oldest in their classroom and, and why is that it's because just younger children have a harder time sitting still. So we have a bucket that we call ADHD that was written up because a bunch of psychologists sat in a room and they said, "Well, what do we think the symptoms of ADHD are?" And if you want to get diagnosed with ADHD, you go to a physician and they say, "Do you have the symptoms that match that this list that I have?" And that social socially defined bucket has biological correlates, right? And um So we can't just look at it with one frame or the other, right? If we ignored the fact that people with ADHD's brains work differently, we would be missing part of the story. If we miss the fact that part of the reason why it's problematic for people's lives is that we expect five-year-old boys to sit at a desk for eight hours all day, we would also miss part of the story. And I think there's another level, too, that makes ADHD a really great example, which is the difference i talk about this in my book the difference between valued and valuable so in certain contexts being very low in adhd symptoms is very valued right if you are an eighth grade teacher you really value the not adhd kids in your classroom that are not moving and not making a disruption right but if you are a society that also wants divergent thinking, that wants risk-taking, that wants novelty, it's also valuable to, you know, we value members of our society that do have ADHD. So it's not like someone's, some, some brains are inherently more valuable than other brains. It's that depending on the context, some people whose brains work differently their skills and their weaknesses are valued differently, depending on what that context is, is calling for. Um, so what's interesting to me is that if I say, genes influence your likelihood of ADHD, and of course, some kids with ADHD struggle in school, that's not a very controversial statement. But if I say, your genes influence your likelihood of going far in school, somehow, it starts becoming controversial, but they're, they're versions of the same, the same claim, which is that our genes affect the construction of ourselves and ourselves are being kind of pushed through these social contexts, um, which in some cases are very rigid uh, and we're not equally likely to navigate those um, in ways that, those I'll put that differently. Social contexts are not designed equally well for everyone
0: Yeah. Uh, What is epigenetics? And can environments be considered epigenetic? Is that pushing that (laughs) definition too far?
1: Yeah. So epigenetics is a really, um, it's a really expansive term. So it's everything above the genome, right? And so um, we can think of epigenetics as everything that is different in terms of how the genome is expressed um, we study in my lab a particular form of epigenetics, which is called DNA methylation. So it's methyl groups are these things that kind of can kind of glom onto the top of the genome, and if they can block certain parts of the genome being red, in which case it can't make the thing that it, you know that it would otherwise make. Um, we see in our lab that children who are raised in poverty in the Austin area, already show epigenetic patterns that are consistent with biological aging and earlier mortality, even as young as eight. So we see the environment, a phrase that you hear a lot is, we see the environment getting under the skin. And one of the levels in which it can get under the skin is in terms of um, these molecular signatures of how that, that are related to how the genome is expressed in our cells so yes am i hearing <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, that was a very that was a very academically long way of saying yes
0: <laughs> I, well I, I i'm musing about it uh, just trying to make sure that i'm academically honest and and uh you know accurate with with my thinking and my sharing with others um it's it's interesting to think of epigenetics through a much more expansive definition which is really brought to mind by reading some of your work. I was thinking this is the boundaries and the barriers that we put up are just so um, flimsy when it comes to what is really going on in the world, in ourselves, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to shift to a conversation that has become popular in a variety of uh, public circles, which is the debate that is kind of a, a little bit frustrating depending upon who you are, the debate between the equality of opportunity and the equality of outcome. Yeah. And it feels as if the in some particular level the entire debate is misguided somehow. It's missing something really, really important. Yes. So I'd love for you to help encourage us. What should we actually be thinking about? Where does that debate of equality of and they become of course kind of clarion calls, you know, I'm not about equality of outcome, I'm about you know, equality of opportunity, and then it becomes this kind of cudgel in the sphere. But it, what are we missing and what should we actually be discussing and debating?
1: Yeah, so my objection to the equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome frame is that I think both have this implicit metaphor of competition of a race Right. So if you are running a track and field race, um, and you really want everyone to start on the same starting line, and if you set up the race to be very fair, and everyone has a quality of starting position, a quality of opportunity, then you, you conclude that differences or inequalities in people's outcomes are fair fairly distributed you know the the winner has won fairly right um and then a quality of outcomes sometimes says well if we see inequality of outcomes right it must be evidence that there is inequalities in people's starting lines um what i think that that debate misses is why is everything a competition why is everything a race right so this is um, you know, If you have set up a race and uh, the people who win it, who run it the fastest, win something, right? And then you have a debate about, well, did they have a head start, right? In their winning of this thing, which is our huge, like, I feel like all of our political conversations are, um, was the competition fair or did someone have a head start in the competition? What that doesn't ask is, should this thing be the object of competition? What are the stakes of the race? Are there things that we owe to each other even if you're not running the race? right? What do we owe each other regardless of how people compete? Um, so I, another example that I often give is um, in instead of thinking about society as a set of races we all have to compete in, in obsessing about whether the races are fairly Fought or not. What if we think about society as a building that we all are living in and building for each other? Um, and in that way, there is a piece of legislation in America that I, I that I find fascinating, actually, and, and really important, and that's the American Americans with Disabilities Act. So, the Americans with Disabilities Act, for those of you who aren't familiar, is is a law that guarantees. Equal access to and enjoyment of, that's the language, access to and enjoyment of public buildings and public services. And that's really interesting because it's not equalizing the starting line of a competition. It's not equalizing the outcome, right? You're not saying, well, everyone should be able to walk in the exact same way. You're equalizing the ability to participate as participate under conditions of dignity and to enjoy a public space. And you can't actually get there in the way that you you, you um, by making everything exactly the same for people, right? Like so if you build a building and you're like, oh, everyone gets to go up these stairs, like that's not an ADA compliant building, right? So treating everyone exactly the same is not sufficient. To create conditions of equality of access, equality of participation. So, whenever people are thinking about, you know, um, leveling the playing field, or do people have a head start? I just want I want you to notice that the competition metaphors that are implied in those conversations, um, and are there better metaphors for what we we owe each other? Um, that's. I think that's another dimension. I think the equality of opportunity and the equality of outcome is really focused on what did I get and was it fair that I got it versus what do I owe other people by virtue of them being human, by virtue of existing in community with them.
0: That's fantastic. That's uh, really helpful. You have a, this is one of the things that's so fascinating about your work. You're a behavioral geneticist. Did I get that right? Behavioral geneticist? Yeah. Yeah. But what you just articulated is a moral philosophy as well. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. And, yeah.
0: it and is. so that's really what's so fascinating about this and the melding of the two, the science of genetics with the moral philosophy. Um, I had a perception that you had a faith background. So now that we're talking about your moral philosophy, I'd be kind of curious if you'd be willing to share what is this equality that you are talking about? What is this justice? And you use the word just social equality. Yeah. I think you used the word justice a couple times in your book as well. What is this yeah. thing that yeah. you're you're talking about and then we'll jump back into the science of genetics and how that is how we need to construct our societies to get to that particular place.
1: Yeah. So I, I do have a faith background. Um, my parents are evangelical Christians and I was raised an evangelical Christian. Um, I was in, uh, you know, church on Wednesday night and Sunday morning and sometimes Sunday night. And I went to Christian private school my whole life. So I was really steeped in, um, uh, I think the motto of my school growing up was to provide a Christ centered, biblically based education. Uh, for students. So um, I left the church in my early 20s. I'm no longer a practicing Christian, but I think it's pretty clear in the book that I was very much influenced by um, Christianity in that conception of justice. And and I, I think in ways that are just now becoming apparent to me now, right? So I think when you when you break with a tradition when you're young, there's this temptation to be to be like, well, that was then, and now now, you know, now I've moved beyond that. And now that I'm in my forties, and in particular now that I'm having conversations about these sorts of things with my children, it's clear to me um, actually that there's maybe been more continuity than change in in many aspects of my belief. But I you know what does the new testament talk about right so what is what did what does jesus talk about in the new testament he talks about the the danger of wealth to our souls he talks about um you know there will be neither Jew nor gentile right he talks about he talks to sinners he talks to samaritans he talks to people who um were considered lower and other right and and so i think that that metaphor of how can you build a more inclusive society is actually very biblical, right? Because it's, 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 an, it's a reading of the New Testament that is around um, what are the hierarchies that we have set up for ourselves, and, and how actually does justice often involve dismantling those and inviting more people in? And so I that theme continues to be really, really important to me.
0: Thank today. you so much for sharing all of that. That's uh, we're in um, a community of people that I think are on a not too dissimilar journey of having left the parochialism behind uh, kind of whatever other terms we want to use the religiosity. But I'm asking this also in, in addition to just finding some camaraderie with you in, in that spiritual journey, I'm also asking because I feel like that is really an, an important part of the journey and important part of the book because the genetic science of the previous generation, definitely incomplete, um, yielded very different social outcomes from what you're proposing. And much of that has to do, correct me if I'm wrong, this is, I'm, I'm gonna make a statement, but it's actually a question. Um, much of that appears to actually come from exactly what you were mentioning what kind of position or posture or predilections already existed so if you have a racist society if you already believed in a particular hierarchy if you um, were looking for justifications for the stratification that we had in society then you run across genetics well then yeah, th- th- this is clearly justification for the kind of social outcomes that we see and also a justification for perpetuating the kind of policies. Mm-hmm. And what you what you did in here, which was just so stunning to me is what in many ways was kind of offensive to some is that the genetic science is is the same. I like the genetic science is the science. There is a level of causality in the in the sense of the definition that you have genes matter we have to say that we have to be able to point to the science of how much that influences who we are personalities yes even our intelligence our predilections all of that kind of stuff but yet the conclusion that you draw from that is that information is important and critical for us in how we create a just society and that we should create a just society from there and those two different trajectories it appears to me is just really based upon some sort of spiritual or philosophical background. So there's my statement, yeah. which is really a
1: question. <laughs> so I would quibble with one part of that, which is, okay. I don't think the science is exactly the same. And I think the biggest divergence is around race. So I think there is there has been a, a, a kind of pseudo-scientific story around race as a genetic thing right and one 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 thing that i talk about in my book is that you know if we compared the genotype of people whose recent ancestors all came from you know what is the the territory of the uk and people whose recent ancestors came from china they would be more genetically similar to each other than two people who came from different parts of Africa and would both be classified as black in the US right so our 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 boxes again we're back to we have a box of ADHD and not ADHD our box of black or of asian or of white are not representations of the genetic diversity between us and in and in fact there's way more genetic diversity within each one of those boxes than there is between so i think that's a major scientific Divergence. But I do think you're right that there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, some non controversial things scientifically. You know, um, genes are related to how you score on intelligence test scores, and the sorts of skills that we test with intelligence tests are related to the sorts of things you have to do in educational settings, such that there are genetic differences between people that influence how far they go in school, right? So that's an observation. Um, it was very Im, Im, important in writing the book to describe that while also being clear about how I make sense of it politically and morally. I, I don't think I could have written the book from a place of kind of objectivity or, or neutrality, uh, because I think we're at a point where there everyone has, whether they've articulated it to themselves or not, everyone has a conception of fairness. Everyone has a conception of equality, of justice. And we're going to, we're going to interpret the science from that frame. Um, everyone has a positionality. So it was important to me to articulate my positionality in describing the science, which required me to actually figure out what that positionality was, to, to articulate it to myself. Yeah.
0: Thank you for that. That was fantastic, because I did want to ask you about the racial component. And I don't think, uh, unfortunately, we still live in a, a very depraved society when it comes to uh, our, our racial yeah. constructs. So the the stating this from, I wish, I wish your statement about the genetic com- composition of our, our racial diversity uh, just solved the problem. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> you know... We'll just have to add it to yet again how that kind of racial construct is just so terribly, not not just unjust; it's just wrong, right? I mean, the, yeah, yeah. But I,
1: but again, I think this is an opportunity too for education. So there's wonderful work coming out, looking at well, if you if you teach high school students this, right? If they learn about genetics, not talking about pea plants, but about genetic diversity within Our social constructs of race does it change their attitudes towards race and it does so i think you know this is something that's very salient to me when i teach first-year undergrads or when i teach my own children Um, we are teaching children about race regardless of whether or not we think we're teaching children about race even if we're silent we're teaching children about race so we have an opportunity to 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 weave scientific facts into what we're telling our children and our students about race and I think there's possibility there to you know if not change attitudes radically at least cut off some of the paths by which people can become radicalized when they when they encounter false narratives
0: yeah and, and research such as yours is really critical for for that end so that's fantastic jimmy i'm going to ask you throughout the some of the side questions uh, that have come in. I'm going to ask uh, Paige a, a couple more questions and we'll get to those questions on, on Slido. Um I kind of want to, I don't know how you're going to sum up this question, but given all <laughs> that we've discussed, what is your recommendation then for those of us who vote and for those of, uh, uh, of us who participate in civic society for how we are to then construct our social systems, whether that be educational yeah. systems, whether that be medical systems, what do we need to do and take into consideration when we participate in that particular way? How shall we now think about this given our advancements in our genetic understanding?
1: Yeah. So one thing that I talk about in the book is my experiences as a mom. When I wrote the book, I had two kids, I've now had three. and children are different from one another, right? If you have more than one kid, you know that they're different from one another. And the reason I talked about that is that I think the vantage point of a parent who has different children is the most intuitive way for many people to get into the idea of what it means to to want equal enjoyment and participation of people not in spite of difference, but almost in celebration of difference, right? So if I'm thinking about the ideal school, my ideal local public school, right, I don't want a school that treats every child exactly the same and then says, oh, that was a fair race that they all ran and they competed in, right? I want a school that says, well, this is what this child needs and this is what this child needs, such that they both feel like they can participate and they can contribute and that they're valued. And I that's the frame that I bring into thinking about educational systems, but also housing policy, but also um, policy towards homeless populations in Austin, or you know, what do we need for mental health care, which is if i'm if I am surveying human difference from an attitude of um how do we see difference and create structures that that are in, that are truly inclusive of people's participation and enjoyment of them? If I begin with that prior, what what specifics follow from that? Um, so uh, you know, that's um, again, I think a fairly Christian perspective, which you know, and not in the literal sense of belief in Jesus Christ, but in the sense of if we really think of our fellow citizens as fellow God's creatures, as siblings, and, you know, the phrase I grew up with as brothers and sisters in Christ, but in this case, it's <laughs> as brothers and sisters in community. Right. Um, how how would we live that out in, yeah. in terms of our policies? So
0: so that kind of begs the question, the controversial one, would you be an advocate for genetic testing? And we have 23 Me, and we have all of these tools that are now readily available to all of us that can provide for us that information of that particular aspect of causality and influence. Is that something that is, I mean, that's a very scary uh, prospect for some of us. Some of us are very much willing to embrace it, but uh, that's going to, I mean, that technology poses a a serious
1: question. I mean, I think all technologies have risks and benefits, and I think our current framework in the U S for mitigating risks from genetic data is, is really incomplete. So I would be wary about giving my genetic data to a for-profit tech company at this point in time. Um, I would advocate for more genetic data being collected in the context of research, right? So to the extent that it's, you know, how can we improve our assessment of what interventions work on average, and who, which interventions work the best for people who are most at risk? Can we identify children who um, uh, are most at risk for developing problems in the future and make services and interventions available to them earlier? Those are the sorts of uses of genetic data that I think are the most kind of shovel ready. Um, you know, that being said, I, I think the genotype is like the internet or cars, right? Like are cars good or bad? Is the internet good or bad, right? Like it, it depends on who is using it for which purposes and in, in which contexts. So I, I kind of, I think it's very difficult to have a straight up or down answer to that question.
0: Well, darn. Okay, fine. (laughs) No, I I completely agree. I mean, the technology is in in many ways a tool and however you use that tool is is part of it. Okay, I've got a couple more questions, but here's some questions that came in. Um, First question, are you familiar with The Psychopath Next Door by Martha Stout? What do you think is the best social moral scientific response to cluster B pathology? Oh, that's such sure. a good
1: question, so I have not read that particular book, um, but I think what you're getting at, which is when our biology is related to not just behaviors that are socially valued economically, like going further, further in school, but to behaviors that are moralized. So, do you feel regret if you've hurt someone? Do you, are you aggressive? Um, are you um, narcissistic or Machiavellian? Uh, how do we make sense of you know this um, Kantian, this Christian idea of a free will that really runs through our entire legal system, um, and our knowledge that these are behaviors and personality traits that like every other aspect of human behavior are not determined by, but certainly influenced by our inherited biology. That problem is exactly the problem that I'm grappling with in my book that I'm writing now. Um, I would say that part of the reason I'm writing it is, you know, just like the last one, I'm trying to figure out what I think. (laughs) Um, so I'm going to punt and I'm going to say, uh, I have to finish the book in the next year you should ask me again in a year and then I will know more about how to answer that question um, that more comprehensively
0: that is a that is a fair punt and since you already brought it up one of my closing questions <laughs> was can you give us a preview of your upcoming project original sin uh, any more elaboration yeah. than you just gave
1: Well, so original sin, right, is a doctrine um, from Augustine, and and it's the idea that um, sin is not just something that we engage in, it's not just an action that we do, um, but a theology that really thinks of sinfulness as a condition and a condition that's inherited. Uh, you know, from generation to generation, um, you know, I will, I will visit on iniquities even into the fourth generation, I think is is the, the biblical verse there. Um, and now we have a new science in which we are linking biology to moralized behaviors. And that is obviously controversial, and it's scary, and I think it's scary for many reasons. But I think one of the reasons that it's scary is that it appears to undermine some of the narratives about free will and agency um, that we have about ourselves, that we have in our legal system. Um, and then it brings up, I think, underneath underneath the American culture, there's very Calvinist or very Augustine ideas still in there, uh, bit kind of baked into our stories about ourselves of um, are we damned you know, and uh, so that's the the tension that I want to play with. Um, I think many books about free will and about agency are very kind of written from a kind of an abstract armchair perspective. You know, um, this is a free will problem that affects other people, and I can't really think about ideals that way. So I'm also writing about this in terms of how I've made sense with from this in my own life. You know, we all have things i think if we're honest with ourselves in which we don't feel totally in control but we still feel guilty and we still feel shame and and how do we make sense of those things so that's oh, what i'm grappling with right all right, right now. so we
0: need another hour now to unpack all of that <laughs> holy cow <laughs> So, you'll so have to
1: have me back in a couple of years when oh, the new book comes
0: out most definitely, so your first book is on uh, behavioral genetics and kind of social equality and philosophy and moral philosophy and your second book is on, sounds like genetics and theology and philosophy so that's yeah. going to be an incredible yeah, very much looking forward to that okay, our second question from Slido: uh, how do we change the way that we think about society so we create communities that are working on building that house together where everyone's needs are met I think we touched on this a little bit, but maybe you'll have more to, to share.
1: Um, I mean, the short answer is I don't know. I think the longer answer is I think that question of dissatisfaction with with individualism, with our atomistic kind of, I got mine rights approach to politics is seems to be percolating up everywhere I look. I have friends who are very you know, think of themselves as very conservative and they vote Republican and they're really invested in well how do I keep economic dollars in my in my local community And I have friends who are very left-leaning and you know identify as socialists and they're you know how do we live out community care and mutual aid? I think across the political spectrum um, That is a question that feels, very abstract but also can be grappled with on a really practical level so the way that i've been trying to to deal with this you know as a as a person with kids and a person who's busy is asking myself every month um what help would i want how can i offer that to someone else um and that's my personal praxis but i think we have to start with with our own little efforts to, to build the sort of communities that we want to see.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. By the way, just to let you know, Sean says, I 100 perspe- 100% <laughs> respect the part. So you've got okay. Sean's <laughs> endorsement in there. The last question uh, I wanted to ask you about your book, the, the question before that um, your work was influential in the film Three Perfect Strangers. Is that correct? <laughs>
1: no not my personal work but that three identical strangers gosh that movie i could i could teach a whole class on that movie i really do if i ever get to design an, an upper level undergraduate seminar again i would love to teach a class on that movie um but it's you know that movie is the question of what could have been? What could have been if I had the same genes, but I was raised in a different environment? In that case, you also had an extremely unethical researcher, right, who was placing these, these, these twins separated at birth in different homes without anyone's knowledge. Um, uh, but I, the reason why it's so fascinating to people is who has not wondered that about their lives? Right? If you if you were this began life with this as the same bundle of cells, but you had different parents, if you had different and different neighborhood, in what way would you be the same, and in what way would you be different? And we can't see the counterfactual for our individual human lives, right? We don't ever get forget to see the road not taken, but with identical twins and triplets, separated at birth and reared apart, we get kind of hints, these kind of tantalizing hints of what the road not taken. Um, was for other people. And I, I think that's why it's an, a topic of enduring fascination.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly unethical study that I can't wait gets released, <laughs> you know, it's it's like this could never be done again, or, or at least not mm-hmm. uh, ethically. Um, it's not supposed to. Like, when is that study supposed to uh, be unsealed? I think they were sealed Might? for a
1: hundred years. Yeah, yes. so I think we have several decades left. Oh, yeah.
0: I don't know if I'll be around to to that. So, so my question kind of was, what do you think we're gonna find? What, I mean, what is in that study that once it's unsealed? By the way, for those who are watching, I hope yeah. we're not giving away the 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 film. Is three identical strangers go watch it, and you'll discovered that at the end, the study that was done on these triplets was sealed for 100 years. So we don't have access to the actual material. So my question to Paige is, what what's in there? What, what do you think is in there? And what do you think we're going to find?
1: I actually think we already know what's mm. in there. And I think we know because there's other studies of twins reared apart. There was a wonderful New York Times Magazine article by Susan Dominus a couple of years ago on a set of Um, boys in Colombia, where there were two sets of identical twins, and they got switched such that they each were raised thinking they were part of a pair of fraternal twins, and then they discovered each other. But one set was raised in rural poverty, and the other in an urban environment. Um, And I think you see in that study what you also actually see in studies of genetically identical animals, which is The genome is very powerful, and it isn't everything, and there's this incredible behavioral individuality that emerges even when people began life literally as the same ball of cells. And I think we see that across studies, and I think anything we would get from three identical strangers would be kind of variations on that theme.
0: Well, I've kept you long enough. Um, our time is up. Thank you, everybody, for participating. And, uh, Sean, thanks for your comments and for um, watching and, and being a part of the conversation. Uh, Catherine Page Harden, The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, Original Sin, coming soon <laughs> to a bookstore near you. Can't wait for that to come out, and that'll be a fantastic um next step in our in our journey of understanding paige thank you so much this was incredible and i as i mentioned to you before we went live i think i could spend another seven hours talking we (laughs) didn't we didn't get to everything that's in here but it's just an incredible explication of all of these various topics and the fact that you i know i'm being redundant the fact that you were able to meld the science of genetics with social philosophy throw in a little biblical theology in there um (laughs) as well as social policy and to do it all in a way that is just really grounded and accessible for somebody who did not study genetics, is not in that particular field to make it accessible to people, I think is an incredibly wonderful gift and is necessary for the kind of world that we want to build. So, and especially given the history of uh, genetics and eugenics, which we didn't dive deep into, but given all of that history to have you advance a new perception and view of what of it is just uh, an absolutely phenomenal gift. So thank you so much for that. You oh for my gosh, that was so
1: generous. Thank you. I want to record that and play it back to myself. Well, guess what? It's <laughs> it on YouTube so
0: nice. live and recorded forever and ever. So
1: thank you so much for the generous reading. I really right. appreciate it.
0: All right, friends, have a good night. And this is our final conversation of the year. So if you're interested in the other conversations, um, you can go to viamedia.center or at our YouTube page. Thank you so much for joining us and being part of this amazing community. So grateful for everyone. Have a good night, everybody. We'll see you later.